You're listening to the Third Cup of Coffee podcast. Good day, podcast listeners. Randy Bolander here on the Third Cup of Coffee on our pre-Thanksgiving podcast. Unless you are listening to this after Thanksgiving, in which case it is the post-Thanksgiving podcast, but I'm recording it before Thanksgiving. I love Thanksgiving. I... There's something about people intentionally looking back and and charting their hearts for gratitude that is just beautiful to me. And I am certainly looking back over the last year and going, wow, um, you know, it's been a year for all of us, but I see the hand of the Lord in it in a way that maybe I didn't see in the moment, but I see it now. And that is Thanksgiving. And I'm glad for that. Diving into part six of the letters, which is our series on the first three chapters of the book of Revelation, the letters to the churches of Asia Minor. Now, I need to give you a ramp up here because the actual audio from Sunday starts a bit abruptly. The reason for that is we had audio problems. And so for the first couple of minutes, it's just, it's fuzzy. So when we jump to it, you're going to go, what was he talking about? Let me explain what I'm talking about. And hopefully when we jump to it, it'll all make sense. It is interesting to me that the close of all the seven letters of the book of Revelation end with, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In other words, he is saying these things that we would all learn and we would all internalize what he's saying. Yet he is saying them to specific churches. And sometimes because he's saying them to specific areas of geography, it feels a little bit like eavesdropping. You know, we can just... We can listen over the booth and hear what's being said, and we can even judge, but we don't have to necessarily apply it or, or do whatever. That's not accurate. In fact, the book of Revelation is Jesus peering over the cardboard divider between the booths and saying to us, as long as you're listening, I was speaking to you anyway. Like, this is for you as well. And so all these letters contain a lot of real meaning for us. That makes it all the more interesting that Jesus took the time to address specific churches at all. Like if it was for all of us, why did he even divide it up into seven letters to seven distinct places? It's because geography and context matter in the kingdom of God. Now that's a hard thought for us because we think of godly things as matters of the heart. We look at physical things as some with some sort of disdain because we are Greek thinkers trying to figure out a Hebraic God. It was the Greeks who came up with the idea of spirit and matter being so separate. God's people saw a connection to the natural world and the spiritual world. So as we have studied this, every week we have dove in and talked about both the text and the locale, what's going on in the city at the time. And you may wonder, does it really matter that Thyatira had all these oppressive work unions that demanded everybody think and act the same way? Does it really matter what idols they worshipped? Does it really matter if they were wealthy? or not? Does it matter what the history of the city was? Yes, because the history of the city affected the church of that city and the letter that they received. Okay, you can't divorce the history of a city from the health of the local body. The local church is either overcoming the history of their city and shaping the future, or they're living under the history of the city. And so that's why he dives in and he talks about specific churches, even though the message to that church is applicable to all of us. There we are. We'll dive in now and pick it up from Sunday morning.
history of the city. History and context matter in a region. God cares about geography and he sets borders in place and places matter in ways that we don't think that they do. The very first homicide investigation recorded in history was solved because of geography. If you look at Genesis 4.10, the Lord said, this is after Cain has killed Abel, the Lord says, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. He says, the very land is testifying against you of what happened. Somehow, the ground where that first murder took place absorbed the trauma, and it mattered in that place in a way that was unique. In Deuteronomy 21, the Lord tells them, when you are taking new ground, and you're dividing it up amongst yourselves, and you find a dead body because there's been a murder that you don't know what happened here, measure to figure out what is the nearest city. And that city needs to make atonement and actually sacrifice for that body being found on their ground. Westerners would say, well, we didn't kill them. Hebrews would say, but it happened on your land. And your land matters. And so that is one of the reasons why we look at the history of the context of some of these cities, because it ties into the letter they got, and then he says it matters to all of you. Even the history of Kansas City matters to the bridge because we are either overcoming the history of our city and embracing it or we're coming under the history of our city you look back at the history of kansas city i've lived here for 17 years i've never read any of this stuff it's crazy some of the things that happened in this town you know when you think of kansas city kansas city uh downtown and all that wasn't actually the very first place people settled originally they settled at westport that was the the earliest place where people lived um, which was kind of bad civic planning because everybody arrived on the river. And it was five or six miles from the river. So it's kind of like, you know, building your subdivision five or six miles off the main highway. It's like, what, what are we doing out here? And uh, so that land where people would, would, would land at the river, this rock outcropping, was very valuable. The guy who owned that mysteriously died in a bar fight about 1831. And all of his land was tied up in, in courts and that sort of thing. It was auctioned off in 1838. And the man who auctioned it off insists that he kept the auction open for five or six hours. But everyone who was there said he auctioned it off in 90 seconds to his best friend who borrowed the money from the auctioneer's son. This was a crime and pretty well organized, dare I say. Now, a couple of years later, more civic-minded people complained to the judge, and the judge uh, turned back the auction, and they, they raised the money, and they bought it, and they started downtown. But that idea of organized crime plays through our, the, the history of our city like a thread. Now, it's not all bad. Some of the history of our city is beautiful. There is a great history of Christian philanthropy in this city, of, of radical generosity. 1980s, a group of businessmen gathered, and uh, there was a movement of Christian generosity that was really coming out of Atlanta with a, a leader called Larry Burkett. Some of you are old enough if you remember who this is. We used to listen to him on the radio all the time. Uh, before There'd be no Dave Ramsey if there were not a Larry Burkett. Okay? And this group of businessmen here in Kansas City said, we want to be known 
for generosity. And they banded together and joined other Christian families, very quickly eclipsed whatever was happening in Atlanta. There's this long history of, of radical generosity within the church. Both of those trends, the excessive greed and the radical generosity, affect the church today. You're like, Randy, how, how could that have any effect on the body of Christ? You don't think that some of those mob bosses through the years had their kids dedicated or, or baptized in the churches of our city? It happened. You don't think that some of those generous businessmen weren't affected by the things that they heard in the church? Of course they were. This is all part and parcel of who we are. This stuff matters. Be fools to, we'd be fools to think that the backstory doesn't matter. So that's why we go into the history of some of these cities, because these churches are either battling to overcome the history or it's overcoming them. Geography matters. Revelation 3, starting at the beginning here. By the way, that was, none of that was considered preaching. That was all perfunctory comments, okay? So those of you who started your stopwatch, started over. That was just, that was just, that was just extra, okay? Revelation 3.1. To the angel of the church in Sardis write... The words of him who has seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, where is Sardis? Let's look at the map here so we get an idea of where, where Sardis is in case we're going to look for it. It's uh, there. We're kind of working our way around the circle. We were at Thyatira last week, a little bit further south there in Sardis. But what is Sardis like? How many of you, we'll give you the, the pastoral exemption. Don't feel bad about telling your pastor. How many of you ever been to Las Vegas? Okay. Zoe was born in Las Vegas. We've been to Las Vegas before. I'd never been there before. We spent eight days hanging out in Las Vegas with a newborn. That's about as exciting as it sounds. There was, where do you go with a newborn? Nowhere. We did go down and saw the Bellagio uh, fountains and then turn around and went back home. I think we ate a $20 cheeseburger and went back to our hotel. When you think of Sardis, this is what Las Vegas looks like, okay? That's not exactly what Sardis was like. It was at one point, around 900 A.D., it was booming. Even 700 A.D., it was huge. But at this moment in history, at 90 A.D., I'm sorry, back up, I told you A.D., 900 B.C. or 700 B.C., it was booming. By 90 A.D., it looked like what Las Vegans call the boneyard. This next slide. You know what this is? This is the Boneyard. On Fremont Street in Las Vegas, there's a huge dirt lot. It's where they take all of the old neon, all of the old signs, all of the old marquees, all of the old things that used to flash and attract people are all piled together on this place called the Boneyard. And the Boneyard is full of things that are too useful to be helpful, but too expensive to throw away. Some of you have lives that are full of things that are too useful to be helpful and too expensive to get rid of. Experiences, history, like, oh, that's important to me. It's not really doing you any good. Yeah, but I don't want to get rid of it. We'll pile it together. Sardis, at this point, was the boneyard. It had boomed financially, but it was a little tarnished. It was a little rusty around the edges. Some of the bulbs had burned out. Around the 7th century B.C., they were, they were the first people on earth to mint coins. The idea of giving things value had been done before, but it had always been done by other things of value. For instance, some areas of the world would say, oh, that's worth two cows. That's worth four cows. That's worth six cows. Which works, but it's just inconvenient. All right? Because when you go to the store, you've got to take your cows. Because you've got to trade, for, you know, that's, well, that's three and a half cows. Okay, this got really confusing. 
You need to buy more or, you know, we're going to kill a cow. And so everywhere in the world, there was this idea of value, but nowhere in the world had they minted coins yet. Sardis said, if we minted coins for cows, everything gets easier. So they were the first people to do this. The idea rapidly spread really all around the world, across Asia and Europe. Soon every city was minting their own coins. Now, everybody knows that money can't buy happiness, but apparently you can rent it for a while. Because Sardis was booming once they had figured out how to mint coins. By the time of the writing of this letter to Revelation, though, centuries had passed, and the wealth that Sardis had had waned a little bit, and the whole city was a little bit tired. The whole city was a lot like the boneyard. Something happens in the psyche of people who have had money and don't have it anymore. Something, there's just, if you've ever known anyone who's had a lot and now they don't have it anymore, you realize it has an effect on them. The first year and a half of our marriage, we lived in Williston, North Dakota. Either you know where it is or you don't. Okay, most of you, Daniel knows where it's at. Nobody else knows where it's at. Okay, western frontier of North Dakota, if that's not a redundancy. And Williston sits on the Bakken oil formation, which is 20,000 square miles of shale rock soaked with oil. And depending on the price of oil, it sometimes is cost-effective to drill there, and sometimes it's not. So Williston's economy does this. We lived there during a bust period, in between booms. When we lived there, there were rows and rows and rows of brand-new condominiums that no one had lived in. You could buy a three-bedroom condo that was four years old but brand new. Nobody had ever lived in it, and you could buy the whole thing for $15,000. Yes, in retrospect, we should have bought them all, but we didn't. But it was in a bust period, and as a result, you had lots of people in town who had had a lot of money and spent a lot of money, but now did not. And you had adult men competing with teenagers for jobs at McDonald's who were making six figures just a few years before. The guy who made your fries may have driven a Jaguar to work, but he still needed to make your fries to pay the bill. And it had this weird effect on the city. You had people with big four-wheel drive trucks and expensive snowmobiles and living in poverty. It was somewhat measure of the world of Sardis. Sardinians or sardines, I don't know what you would call them, whatever you would call the people of this town, had known great wealth and now it was gone. And that wealth that they knew made them feel like they were impervious to attack, like nothing could ever happen to them. And throughout history, over and over again, this city was overthrown because they just never kept their guard up. They acted wealthy when in reality they were more like the boneyard. Now, let it be a lesson How you think you are doing is not necessarily how you are doing. Okay? We are terrible at self-evaluation. Sardis would look around and go, we've got it made, we have all all we need, we are never going to be attacked, they'd be overthrown. They would eventually find their independence, and, you know, 100 years later, same thing would happen again. They felt like everything was fine, in reality, It was not. We are terrible at self-evaluation. Look at the second part of that first verse. Jesus says to the people of Sardis, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. 
These letters all start with a really frank assessment. Like Daniel said last week, they all start with that, I know. He knows. He knows their reputation, and it does not match reality. What he knows about Sardis is they are entirely too comfortable with the gap between how they think they're doing, their perception, and reality. They have been rich. They're not rich anymore, but they're in denial. They have been alive, and they're living off that reputation. But in reality, they're not alive as they were before. It's as if the church of Sardis had walked through the life cycle of an organization, and they'd reached the end of it, and no one had the fortitude or the insight to admit they were dead. And I can almost hear the protest of the people in Sardis. That's awfully harsh. Dead? We have a rich history. We have amazing things that have happened. Have you, have you looked at our memory book? Have you looked at the things we wrote down? History does matter. But the most important spiritual day that you have ever lived so far is today really is. Most important spiritual day of your life is right now. Why? You are closer to room temperature than you ever have been. However old you are, you are closer to the end of your life. This day matters. And they looked at themselves and they said, oh, but look at all the things in our past. There's a rich history. It's like me driving to church this morning, trying to tell Piper about this revival we were so affected by. Today is more important than those days. Why? Because this is the day that I'm in. History matters, but not as much as the present does. And here's the scary part. This idea of life and then death is very much the natural uh, progression that congregations go through if left to themselves. It's just the path. Listening to a message this week by John Corson. John Corson, I'm sorry. John Corson was a longtime associate for Chuck Smith at Calvary Chapel in Costa Mesa. Some of you may know this history, some of you don't. If there had been no Chuck Smith, if there had been no Calvary Chapel during the Jesus People movement, there'd be no Vineyard movement, there'd be no Bethel, there'd be no IHOP, uh, KC. It's, these are all cousins. <coughs> Sorry, that didn't work, did it? Can I pause this for a moment and clear my throat so that I might live and not die? Okay. And it wasn't working. There we go. Okay. So I'm listening to John Corser, and, and uh, he shares the natural progression of a congregation. Now, this is not original with him. Later I found out, I don't know where he got it from, where I'm only telling you where I got it, because I hate plagiarism with a passion. And so I'm just telling you this is not original with me. But he shares this idea of the natural progression of congregations. And in our infancy here, it's really important that we become aware of this. He says there are four M's the congregations tend to go through without some sort of intervention. The first one is it starts with a man, a man or a woman. Somebody plants a flag and said, we're going to build a church. doesn't mean they're the king of the thing. It just means that they are the driver of it. And it wouldn't happen if somebody didn't plant the flag. Yes, church is family, but it usually happens with one person who's willing to say, here we go. And that one person, I'm adding this part, is normally a little nuts. Because starting a congregation or church planting is the mixed martial arts of ministry, okay? Because you've got to be able to do everything, and there are more ways to get punched in the face than you can imagine. So there's this planting idea. It usually starts with somebody or a small group of people say, we want to plant. 
that man and what, what, what they're doing turns into a movement. A movement develops as other people latch on and go, oh, I want to be a part of that. That looks fun. Let's, and let's bring our friends. And, let, let's, and it, they're a little chaotic. The movement becomes so successful, though, that it begins to generate its own power and its own momentum. Its programs move, operate flawlessly. Everything works. The pastor doesn't have to mute his mic to cough. Okay? Uh, like, just everything works perfectly. They don't get there and realize that the room has been set up for a play. All right? And, and they snap over from movement to a machine. And that machine is now dedicated to what has worked. Okay, we figured it out. This is how we do church. And it becomes a machine based on its own success and based on what works. And when it's a machine, it's awesome. It's easy. You go there, plenty of children's workers, amazing nursery. Everything is perfect. Everything's great. And it generates its own mojo. You know, the thing just cruises. Then it goes from being a man to a movement to a machine to at some point, it snaps over to becoming a monument. It becomes a monument to the success of when it was a machine. What's another word for a monument? A headstone. When it crosses over to a monument, it can be big, it can be significant, and it can be dead. Doesn't mean it has to be, but it can be. Now, if you were to ask people, once their church became a monument, by the way, don't do this, that's highly offensive to people, but if you could, if you asked people, once it became a monument, when were the glory days? When was it the, when, like, when you look back at the history, when was the best? We would think they would say, when it operated like a machine. When, when it ran on all eight cylinders, when it was just perfect. That would be the, oh, that'd be the best. That's not what they say. They look back and they go, you know when it was awesome? It's when it was a movement. When it was chaotic. When we didn't know what was going to happen next. That was the best of the best. Movements are messy and they're chaotic. And some people take the vision and they run the wrong way and you got to circle them back. And, you know, they're just a little bit crazy. Proverbs 14 or 14 4 says, where there is no ox, the manger is clean. You know, I mean, if, if, you, don't, if you don't want movement, if you don't want chaos, you can have a cleaner place, but it's, it's, it's not the exciting place. I really think we are on the verge of movement status. Now, I mean, don't look around. <laughs> it's hard to tell right now. But I think we're close to that. When we look at what the Lord has done in the last year and a half, you go, something's going on here. But don't think of that machine badge as something we're eager to unlock. Because the minute we get to machine status, somewhere somebody is chiseling a headstone. The bridge. You know, I'm hoping they misspell it or delay things a little bit. But movement is where the excitement is and where life is. Sardis, at this point, was a monument. They had a reputation of being alive, but they were dead. Revelation 3, 2, and 3. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. Wake up? You said they were dead. This is the equivalent of going to a funeral, walking up, looking at the open coffin, putting an alarm clock in the coffin, and shutting it. 
Guy in the coffin doesn't need an alarm clock, okay? But apparently, he's saying, no, 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 you can wake up from the dead. You can wake up from the dead if Jesus is the one sounding the alarm. Apparently, there's some kernel of life within them, maybe in their history, the Lord implanted something in them, and he's like, no, 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 you've got to wake up. You've got to remember. You've got to go back to where you were. You are not committed to monument status or even machine status. I can revert this back to a movement. Now, history can never be made into a god, or we, we build monuments. But history can be very important in motivating us to wake up once we realize we're dead. When Paul writes to Timothy, he spends significant time encouraging him to reflect back on history so that he doesn't become dead. He tells him... Uh, in 1 Timothy 1, 18 and 19, remember what was spoken over you. He said, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have shipwrecked their faith. Because some have not fought the things that God has promised them, they have actually capsized their own faith. Some of you have... You have prematurely made peace with letting go of things God promised you and he's telling you to fight for them. Like you look back and there have been words that have been spoken over your life and because they are so tender to you and they are so important to you and you haven't seen them yet, you have numbed yourself to that memory because in numbing yourself to it, it's easier. He's going, no, 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 no. You fight with those things. You dredge them up from the past and say, Lord, you said, the Lord is never offended when you remind him of his word. He is not bugged by that. He tells Timothy, fight for those things that he promised you. If you're feeling dead, reach back to what the Lord promised you. Pull it up into your future. Those words still live. He's not telling him here, build a memorial. It's not a monument thing. It is looking back and saying, God, you did that for me then and you made promises and I believe you for those promises. I was so stirred this morning remembering a time in our late 20s when we were so hungry for revival in our nation. I mean, we lived for it. I'm like, Lord, I want to fight for that again. I want to believe for that again. I... The nation is a dumpster fire. I don't care where you are on the political line. I don't care where you are. On this, like, you look around, you're like, this cannot be how it ends. There's got to be more. I want to fight for that as the church. Even when it would be easier to go, let's just cope. Let's just let it go. He says, no, no, fight for the things that you were told. Second thing he tells him to fight with the history is to remember the gifts that God gave you. Second Timothy 1.6, he writes to him, he says, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of hands. He goes, Timothy, do you remember? We laid hands on you and you received gifts from God when you were younger. You've got to fan those to flame." Just because we were, those were implanted in you does not mean they've come to fruition. And the way that the Lord wired you in that moment, he wants to build that out. 
No matter what is going on around you, do you remember that moment that you encountered him and we laid hands on you and he did something in you? I'm, I'm in this season personally. I don't feel like I'm spiritually dead, but I am revisiting how God wired me and things he promised me to say, I want to live that out to its fullest. I feel like I have a God-given gift to think about things at a little bit of an odd angle. Some of you are going, no kidding. <laughs> I mean, no, I, I just really feel like something the Lord has put in me and has honed in me through some mentors that I've had, this creativity and be able to think of things at a different angle. I, and I am saying, Lord, I want you to fan that into flame. I want to experience the fullness of it. Because, you know, we've all been a little bit beaten down over time. And sometimes it's easier just not, not even to fan those things into flame. That's how Paul encouraged Timothy to press into his future. It would be an immense help to the church of Sardis if they had the will to wake up and do that. Kelsey recently brought home some melatonin that is not our normal melatonin, okay? I don't, it's like super strength, lose your husband for hours melatonin, all right? I took one of those things the other night. Oh my word, I was gone. And then when the time came to wake up, I'm like, oh. I'm laying there. I'm maybe awake-ish. But I am comparing my state, which is in the bed, to the fate which awaits me getting out of the bed. And this is a really hard choice to make. I could stay. Now, I could have stayed there, and I could have fallen asleep, and I could have had a dream that I was awake and took the kids to school. But that dream was not reality, okay? The perception that I had was not what really happened. You know, okay, if, if that would have happened, I did get up, by the way. I, but if that had happened, and I got, I got up later, and Kelsey said, did you take the kids to school? I, said, I dreamed I did. Well, they're right here. What I perceived would not necessarily have been reality. Here's why it's important to wake ourselves up from the death slumber, even if our reputation is of being alive. The reality of the situation is the one we're held accountable for. I can't call to the school and say, I dreamed that the kids were there. They don't care. They don't care what I feel or what I think. What they want is kids in seats. They want reality. Revelation 3, verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 3, the latter part of that verse says, if you will not wake up, I'll come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I come against you. If you will not. Not if you cannot, but if you will not. If you ask people about the events of their life, they will often tell you the story of their life as if they are Forrest Gump. They have no idea how these things happen. They just, you know... They went, I don't know, I just kind of found a job somewhere, and then I kind of found somebody, we kind of got married, and somehow we kind of had kids. And, you know, it's like everything was just a random events generator, and the Lord is up there just pulling numbers out of a bucket of golf balls and telling you what you're going to do. No, no, the truth is, the bulk of what happens to us, we willed into, into existence. Like, we actually determined, I'm going to do that, I'm going to do this. And by our will... Our lives are often formed. Now, does the Lord move and change things and have sovereignty? Yes, but we will a lot. Your will determines your behavior. Behavior determines a lot of your life. When people think about the big events of their life, 98% of what we go through is the result of things we willed to do. And the, what he says here is, if you will not, 
wake up. If you decide not to, like that's on you. If you will not wake up, I'll come like a thief in the night against you. The Bible uses that coming as a thief or, or, or the, the idea of a thief entering in, uses that phrase a lot. It's not always, um, it's not always indicative of the Lord. It says that the enemy is a thief that comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus says in Revelation 16, 15, behold, I am coming like a thief. 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 talks about the day of the Lord coming like a thief. The point is not that this is the rapture. This is the point is not that this is even the end of the age. The point is, if you are dead and you think you're awake, he's going to rattle your hamster cage. And he's going to wake you up. And you are not going to expect it when he does. It would be far better to will yourself awake than it would be to wait until he does what he needs to do to get your attention. You can will to wake up, or perhaps you will not, but in not being willing to shake off your spiritual slumber, that has grave consequences. After this really sober warning, Jesus speaks to an entirely different group of people who are in Sardis. Now, they're not a big group. John says they're few, but they're hugely significant. Verse 4, chapter 3. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. What makes them worthy? Their reputation and their reality are in alignment. They're not dead and think they're awake and alive. Their reputation and their reality are in alignment. They have done the hard work of maintaining vigilance in their heart and maintaining holiness in an environment where holiness was hard to find. Now, when you speak about holiness, people get nervous. They just lean back. The reason is because what, most of what we've heard about holiness is actually legalism. And nobody wants any of that. Maybe you've had a brush with legalism over the years, rules for rules' sake, and the condemnation of those who would not accept the rules. Legalism is adherence to rules apart from reason. And we all have a little bit of it in us. If you don't notice it, it comes out when you have children. The 43rd time they tell you or ask you why. Because that's the rule. Okay, it just, it just, that's the rule. Just do it. Okay? But some of us, that was our spiritual underpinnings growing up. There were rules. And we just stuck to the rules apart from reason. And now when we talk about standards and holiness, we think we're talking about that. That's not it. Holiness is maintaining a standard for a higher purpose. I'm not just doing this because I'm told. I'm doing this because it matters. Proverbs 19, or 29, 18 says, Where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint, but blessed is he who keeps the law. In other words, if you can't see the reason, if you can't see where it's going, you cast off all restraint and you embrace unholy things. But if you can see where this is going, you'll actually embrace holiness. And the people of Sardis, whose names were remembered at the end of this letter, were remembered because they had lived holy lives. That's what Jesus is describing here. He says they've kept their garments clean. In verse 5, he says, the one who conquers 
will be clothed thus in white garments. At the end of the age, the ones who make a difference, who live and who are blessed at the end, will have white garments. And I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He says, at the end of the age, those who have kept themselves pure, I will testify before my father about them, and I will never blot their name out of this book. In our home, we're kind of trying to teach our kids the value of what money means and to have their own money, uh, which is incredibly chaotic, as you can imagine, because there's so many kids. And, and the idea of giving them their money is like not a good idea uh, because you end up having all these side deals and trades. And, you know, the older one sells a $3 item to a small one for $14. You know, it's just bad for them to actually carry cash. Some of you are going, it's bad for you to carry cash. So, okay, multiply that times a bunch of kids. So what we do is we have a little file on my phone with a record labeled the family bank, okay? And I know exactly how many dollars, because who carries cash anyway? You know, they, we give them a little job to do. It's a little extra. It's, you know what, we'll pay a dollar for that. And, okay, and I keep track of that. And they want to know, was it written down? Dad, was it written down? Are you sure it was? Because apparently there is some controversy as to whether or not I keep accurate records. In full disclosure. There's been no embezzlement. There has been a little laziness. But they want to know, is it written down? Dad, did you, are you sure? And I, I get the phone, I look, okay, show your account here. Yes. They want to know that it was written down. Jesus says, if you focus on holiness, it's written down. There's a record. It's not being changed. And not only is it written down, I will testify before my Father about your life. Can you imagine the Son of God looking to his Father and saying, let me tell you about Pat. Let me tell you about Jerry. Let me tell you about Mary. And then he tells them how you have lived your life in faithfulness. I want to ask if the worship team would come back for a moment. Jesus is saying if we don't purposefully wake ourselves and keep ourselves pure, he says, if you do this, I'm writing this down, guys, and I will never forget this. I want to implore you, as a church, got to wake up. And we are not the best arbitrators of where we stand before the Lord. We're just not. I can find reasons and excuses for every harebrained thing I do, for every shortcut I take, for everything that I do that might not have been the best idea and might have even been wrong. And I can look back later and I go, well, that was actually justified. If you'd have been there, you'd understand the Lord's going, no, you made excuses for yourself. This is why honest self-examination has to include the work of the Holy Spirit. It's got to include the work of God in your life. Because we would say we're alive. And there are times he'd look at us and go, eh, not so much. And that's not condemnation. That is a favor. That is a favor. I want to ask you to stand with me. We have held back a little time this morning because I want to do this. I want to take some time in the presence of the Holy Spirit to allow him to examine our own lives. This is not where you take inventory. This is where you ask him to take inventory. 
Rachel's going to lead. I just encourage you to bow your heads for a moment. Begin to ask him, Lord, when you see me on the inside, what do you see? Begin to ask him, Lord, over the past week, what are the things that made you cringe, Lord? Not me. I was fine with them or I wouldn't have done them. But what are the, what are the attitudes that I had that caused you to struggle, Lord? What are the words that I spoke that were not of you? What are the habits that I have developed, the shortcuts that you are uncomfortable with, Lord? Lord, your comfort is the standard I want to live to, not my own. Begin to ask him those questions right now. Holy Spirit, I ask that you come. Holy Spirit, come and flood this place. Begin to speak to us about our own situation. Begin to shine a light in the resources, recesses of our heart. That we would see ourselves the way you see ourselves. Father, I pray for a spirit of conviction. Rest on us, God. Father, we ask that you would have your way in our hearts right now. You of our heart. Begin to ask. We've got time here. Just begin to ask him. Show me, Jesus. 